With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. and welcome to the Hockey Minds Podcast. This podcast is powered by My Hockey Resource and Instat, the leader in video and data analysis. Instat Hockey supports all levels of our game worldwide with video breakdowns and or scouting services. For more information, visit Instat on the web at instatsport.com or on Twitter at Instat Hockey. Today I'm joined by Todd Woodcroft, head coach at the University of Vermont. Possessing an excessive amount of NHL and international experience, Todd presents a very detailed breakdown of his career, featuring high-level players, high-level coaches, and more. For those looking to see what it takes to make it to the top level, this is the episode for you. With that, I am happy to present Todd Woodcroft, head coach at the University of Vermont. Today on the podcast, we're joined by Todd Woodcroft, head coach at the University of Vermont. Todd, thanks for joining the podcast. Thank you very much for having me, Ryan. I appreciate it. Yeah, I mean, you're one of those people that I've, uh, you know, admired from afar just for the multitude of experience that you've had in the game. So it's exciting to uh, finally get you on the podcast. So let's dive right in and maybe just start off by talking about yourself a little bit, maybe talk about your upbringing, where you grew up, and then your involvement in youth sports. I think any uh, person who chooses coaching as a living has probably had the fortune to have had people who have influenced their life at some point uh, in a coaching capacity. And the absolute first thing you talk about, for me anyway, is my family, my parents, uh, and my two brothers who, who we all coached each other. We weren't a you know, particularly well-off family, uh, just a hardworking family. And, uh, you know, even still to this day, uh, my brothers and I, both of them are also professional coaches, head coaches, ones in uh, the KHL in Minsk and my uh, other brothers in the uh, head coach for the Edmonton Oilers Farm Club in uh, Bakersfield. So all the lessons we learned from, from our parents, first and foremost, and then each other, but of course, all the youth coaches we had and all the sports we played growing up, I think those are uh, the people that shaped uh, you know, kind of my philosophies in coaching and teaching and just being a man and, and, and being a good person and a human. I think all that stuff comes first and foremost from your family. And then secondly, from the coaches who had an influence on you from an early age. Yeah, that's, uh, you know, it's always a, a very good thing to have that positive experience growing up and, uh, you know, a family that helps lift you up and, and push you forward. And uh, you see a lot of times those people who have that uh, support system early on, are the people that succeed and move on in the industry. And uh, that was definitely the case for you in hockey. So 
early on, one of the things that you did was uh, start a hockey school. Maybe just talk about the process of starting a hockey school like that yeah. and then how it prepared you for hockey, you know, in your career later on. Well, long before my brothers and I created a hockey school, we were students at a hockey school and, and, and we went to a hockey school called Seneca College Hockey School in Toronto uh, that we all ended up actually working at as well, all three of us. And that was run by a man by the name of uh, Vern Buffy. And when I was a young guy, like this is back in the 70s and early 80s, like our instructors were people like Paul Coffey, and Adam Graves, and like, like people who, you know, you wouldn't expect to be teaching young guys how to, how to play hockey and young girls how to play hockey. And that, that, those are formative points in my life where being able to see people that, uh, you know, and Adam Graves was, was just a junior player or even a midget player around those times, Brian Marchman, all those guys who came through that program and, and came and gave back to the younger players. And when my older brother uh, signed a professional contract and was playing in the, in the uh, at that point it was the IHL uh, in Indianapolis, uh, we decided to create our own hockey school and, and we started in Des Moines, Iowa with about 12 kids. And we essentially did it just so we would have an opportunity to spend our summers together. And then the first summer that was 1993, uh, from there, we just kept building and building and building. And at the end of the day, I think coaches are all builders. They're trying to build something and solve a problem and help young players. And we were able to do that together. And we were able to do it, you know, pretty successfully. We, you know, by the time we all got out of the hockey school. We were in like 60 cities all across the world, different countries. And uh, it was amazing. And dozens and dozens of players who came through as young hockey players are now playing in the NHL or now playing in Europe or playing NCAA hockey or, or even they just had a, hopefully they had a great experience coming through and learned that, uh, that, that fun can also equal success as well. Yeah, hockey schools are always a great experience, whether, you know, you see a player go to the NHL level or uh, maybe they decide that hockey uh, isn't their career path. But uh, being involved in a number of ones here in, in St. John's, Newfoundland, you know, it, it's always a positive experience. And uh, for you personally to be able to go to hockey school as a player and have people like Paul Coffey uh, teaching you skills, I mean, what an invaluable experience, you know, to, to be able to interact with those guys on a daily basis and, and just see what the, uh, the NHL quality players are like. Yeah, I'm sure Paul Coffey doesn't remember me as much as I remember <laughs> Paul Coffey, that's for sure. Yeah, definitely. But, you know, he, he played in the NHL, and, and soon enough you would make it to the NHL as well, uh, breaking in with the Minnesota Wild as their video coach. Uh, how did you find yourself in Minnesota, and uh, how was the learning curve associated with video coaching at that level? I think that if anybody uh, would take anything from me over the course of this conversation this morning, is actually probably the word conversation. How many things start with a conversation? So I was fortunate enough to have kept a relationship alive from my McGill days with one of my best friends and, and uh, mentors, really a, a man by the name of Jamie Compon, who was uh, a video coach for the St. Louis Blues at that time. And, and through my hockey school, uh, I was living in uh, Iowa and, uh, there was a playoff game. It was uh, San Jose against St. Louis. And a couple of my friends from Toronto were down visiting. And I said, you know what? I'm just going to call Jamie. And we had stayed in touch and, and said, you know, with the 
crazy idea of just driving down there in a game seven, I think it was, to see if we could get uh, tickets. And of course, Jamie set us up with tickets and uh, showed us around the room and showed us what he did for a job. And it was so intriguing to me. And I remember leaving there and, and you know, of course, thanking him profusely for the opportunity to go watch uh, an amazing playoff game, uh, actually for free too, which is the best part for us. But it, saying to him, you know, if you ever hear of something like this come up, like I would really, really love to do something like this and, and to essentially follow his footsteps uh, as a coach, which continued on. And even until this day, he's still a huge influence in my life. Uh, we talk every couple of days and it's not always just about hockey, but uh, from there, he had heard uh, that the Minnesota Wild were looking to hire a video coach in their inaugural season. So uh, I got a phone call from the assistant general manager at that time, a, a man by the name of Tom Lynn, and he asked me if I wanted to interview for this job. I said, of course, uh, this would be an amazing experience for me. And then I had to interview with uh, the general manager, uh, another mentor, even still to this day. We talk all the time. I go and I visit him and, and, and he taught me so much. Uh, even not just about hockey, my, my passion for fly fishing came from Doug Riceboro. So just all the little things that had happened. But on the phone call, he asked me, he said, well, this is a video coach position. Like, do you, do you feel comfortable, like, you know, with video? Do you know how to do that stuff and, and how to use? At that point, it was a specific machine. He said, do you know how to use this machine? And I said, oh, of course. Yeah, no, I, you know, I, I know how to do that 100%. And, you know, in reality, I'd I couldn't even program the timer on my VCR at that point, but, uh, you know, I, we got in there. I got a chance to interview with uh, the two assistant coaches, Mike Ramsey and Mario Tremblay. Again, two gentlemen who still to this day are a big part of my life. Uh, they kind of liked me in the fact that I had a little bit of fun and some energy. And then the big test came with uh, Jacques Lemaire and uh, the, you know, the opportunity to sit with Jacques and for, for him to, kind of go over the game with me as I saw it and, and has how he saw it as well. Uh, he was very clear in his expectations of what he wanted from video. Uh, and he hired me and even full circle out of the blue, he called me three days ago and it was like the best two hours I've had in the past six months of just catching up. He didn't need anything. He didn't want anything. He just wanted to see how I was doing, how the transition was. And that to me is such an important part of the network you surround yourself with people who care about you. And then when it's your turn, you care about people right back. So all those people cared about me and they had no reason to, and they all developed me. And, and now if I have any opportunity to do that, I will always do the same thing because I learned at the feet of the greatest people. So it was an amazing opportunity with the wild that I learned so much about hockey things that i never even considered and most people would never consider like you you're you're literally sitting with one of the geniuses a savant almost in jacques lemaire a man who if you asked any nhl head coach right now who they would revere most of them would have jacques lemaire in that conversation so that this wasn't the digital era this was vcr to vcr and like editing and it was like you know the machine we had to carry around was like 110 pounds and you know it was a lot of uh work that the video coaches nowadays didn't have to do now uh we had to do back then but of course the video coaching job now has 
way more responsibilities at the same time with you know a video review and challenges and all the things that I didn't have to do but I was able to learn the game from the lens of a man like Jacques and Mike Ramsey and Mario Tremblay and just kind of continue on from there. Yeah, and those invaluable experiences, again, uh, meeting with those people, I'm sure, helped you down the road. And uh, former guest Chris DePiro always talked about uh, you can build connections, but uh, even more important is building the relationships. And it seems like that with that initial group there in Minnesota, um, you know, from day one, there was a relationship there and you guys got to trust each other and, and learn from each other. And, uh, you know, even today, like you said, a couple of days ago, you're still connecting with these people uh, and, and being able to uh, continue those relationships, uh, you know, down the road. I, you know, I know Chris a little bit and I actually I'm, I'm writing that down as I'm listening to it because that's very sage advice, the difference between a network and a relationship. And I think the the important part there and what Chris said is fantastic and it's got to be sincere like like it has to be something that uh, a relationship requires time it requires honesty it requires trust uh, you know all those things and and that takes time to build and uh, that's a difference in just knowing people versus people knowing who you are and what are your values and what is important to you as a coach and you know, all those little details about what, whatever my opinion is worth. I think that's what makes a coach successful. Definitely. And, you know, you talk about, you learn so much in that role. You would take that into roles later on, which included scouting, which was your next stop. Uh, just talk about the move into a scouting position and then talk about the task of scouting with uh, Minnesota and even Washington. Well, that, that's where kind of life hits you in the eyes too, right? Like I was in Washington as a video coach with Glenn Hanlon, who, uh, you know, one more time, like we still stay connected. Glenn's still coaching. Uh, he gave me so many opportunities. Internet. He gave me my first uh, international experience outside of Team Canada when he brought me with Team Belarus. And, uh, but Washington D.C. is a very, very expensive city, and and uh, video coaches at that point were not. It wasn't the most lucrative of uh, careers. And, and you know, I, George McPhee, who was one of the best people I've ever had the opportunity to even be in the same airplane with or same locker room with, uh, you know, he said to me, Hey, let's, let's help you out and, and try and teach you a, a different part of the game and the management side. And, and with the director of amateur scouting at that point, the assistant general manager for the capitals. Now his name is Ross Mahoney, who's kind of known as one of the best evaluators of talent, managing talent, uh, you know, he taught me so much about how to watch players and what to see and, and you know, how to build the team. And, and of course, it culminated in a Stanley Cup for the Capitals. And you could see it all the way back from when I started with them, I think it was in 2006, you know, that that team was on a track to become an elite team, which now they're a perennial elite team. And, and all the work that goes into that it doesn't just happen you know, in, in, in a couple of days or even maybe even a season, like it takes time, like all the lessons you learn from losing, like they lost in 98, I think it was, and they never recovered like emotionally uh, with the Capitals and, and they always wanted to get back and they always wanted to get back. And, and that's what drove George. And that's what drove Ross Mahoney, the idea of how do we get back there? You might have one chance to win. What are you willing to sacrifice? What, what corners are we going to, not cut to make sure that we do we have the opportunity to have a Stanley Cup in our in our resume so 
all the lessons from those guys were fantastic. You know, learning how to evaluate talent, learning how to know players as people as well. Uh, you know, it's, it's not just about acquiring the best talent. It's about acquiring the people that are going to be part of your team that you want to build. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, you, you talk about um, that process of building a Stanley Cup team. And uh, as everybody knows, Washington did eventually accomplish that goal recently. It's just interesting to see, uh, you know, where they start and how far they come. And when you acquire players like Ovechkin and Backstrom and uh, the multitude of talent that they've had over the years, it's, uh, you know, it's interesting to be able to get that behind the scenes uh, look into kind of how that process came about. Um, you know, moving forward a little bit, Following your time with those organizations, you would scout with the LA Kings, another team that in recent years was a Stanley Cup champion. Um, how was that position different, if any, a uh, bit different than the previous ones? And just talk about the experience of working for the Kings. That was like a 180 degrees different experience. And, and both of them were fantastic for me. And both of them were formula, formulative years of my life in the sense of I got into the scouting side with the Capitals, and then I feel that I really learned the, the, the craft of it um, with the LA Kings. Dean Lombardi was the first uh, general manager I had been around that, that really made you accountable. And he really made you understand that there's no such thing as, you know, my player. Like, you know, if, if you were a scout and you're in Quebec and, and, you know, you feel that that is your player. You, you can never think like that as a scout. And, and I agree with Dean on that one. It's like, what is the best player for the LA Kings? And if we never draft a player from the area that you are scouting in, that doesn't mean you're, you're not doing a good job. So I, they put me in Europe and, and I was the only guy in Europe at that point. And uh, just having to navigate so many problems in foreign countries and getting around and, and finding the international game and seeing where players, uh, you know, if they had a chance to come over to North America, how they would fit into the LA model. And LA was very specific in how they drafted. And Dean was a, was a genius in the sense that he would study other sports. So he would go and spend time with football teams and with basketball teams. And, and that's where I first myself started to really follow coaches from other sports and managers uh, from other sports to see what they were doing to win. And that all came from Dean. And, and there was two uh, directors of scouting, uh, Mike Fuda and Mark Gennetti. And, and these guys like, you know, essentially taught me that you can outwork other teams in every area. So you can expect it from your players, you can expect it from your general manager, and you can certainly expect it from your scouts. And we had a very small scouting staff, uh, and each of us felt that we had a huge voice and huge responsibility. And it was an amazing experience, even still to this day, how I organize recruits and recruiting players. I do it the same way I learned in, in LA. And it's, uh, it's about finding the, the person that understands that the team is always first and the individual is the second. And those are the people that you want to win with. So when LA won that cup, the first cup that they won, like we barely squeaked into the playoffs this, that year. But the character of the players that had been drafted and developed and then some very shrewd trades by Dean to get the ingredients that we were missing at that point, they led to you know, two cups in a couple of years. So 
I think that the, under Dean and, and the other gentlemen that I worked with there, like it was a, an amazing opportunity for me to learn how to manage right as well. Yeah, I really like the point you make too about, uh, you know, beating uh, or being the best in different areas. Like everybody just expects the on ice product to work hard, but, uh, you know, it goes to hockey operations staff, the scouting staff, uh, even the business staff in different areas. And, uh, you know, when everybody's working at that top level, you can really see the, you know, the success overall. And a lot of times it does translate on the ice. Um, but I was also interested in, in hearing the fact that uh, you were working as a, a, you know, European scout and dealing with the challenges that are associated with going from country to country. I know I often joke about going to Ontario from Newfoundland and I found that almost a, a different experience getting around. So I can't even imagine, uh, you know, going to Europe and uh, the language barriers and the cultural barriers and things like that. Well, that that's like, that's such a, uh, like a positive for me about the NHL environment is the collegiality of the people on, on the other teams, you know, at that point, there would have been 30 teams. And so the other 29 teams, like how they were welcoming to me. So even though I was a foreigner and I lived in, lived and worked out of Sweden, uh, the, the fact that the other scouts and the other teams, they took care of me. They cared about me. Even though we were essentially competitors, they understood that I was a person doing the same job as them. So when I was in Sweden, I had, you know, people will talk about some of the greatest scouts of all time. If there was a Hall of Fame, Hawk and Anderson would be in there as the, he's a Detroit Red Wings uh, chief European scout and Krista Rockstrom. And, and, you know, these guys from different teams that took me under their wing and, and, and got me to the arenas and showed me how to get around in an airport in a foreign country. And, and then you meet people from the Czech Republic, Czech Republic, and then you meet Finnish people and Russian people and German people, and everybody is there to try to help you. At the end of the day, we're 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 each trying to win, but there's a collegiality there too of everybody under the NHL umbrella, and we all care about each other. And you can see it at tournaments when somebody's in trouble on something, and a scout from another team will come and help them, or you know. So that was an something that I'll never forget was how I was treated by people who didn't even really know me and had no reason to help me except that we were all colleagues trying to do the same job and, and I still I talked to I mean it's funny I, it seems like I talked to everybody all day long but I talked to Hawk and Anderson three days ago and it was just you know it's just like we were together five days ago because we just have a rhythm that you just get back into and you talk and it's an amazing thing. And now actually I use all those scouts for their opinions on players over in Europe. So during COVID right now, I, I can't go watch players to try to recruit players to come to Vermont. So I'm able to call all those people and say, hey, do you know this player on this team or do you know this player on this team and get honest appraisals from people who understand I'm not trying to, you know, draft a player that they want to draft. I'm trying to, I'm trying to build a team here. Yeah. And every one of them, every single person that I've reconnected with has been amazing and helping me get information that I need or an opinion on somebody. Yeah, there's so many great people in the hockey industry and uh, scouting, especially, uh, you know, willing to share even in a position where it's tough to at some points. But it's great to hear that you have those connections and uh, you were able to learn from them uh, during your time in Europe. So soon after that, you uh, would gain a more prominent position, this time with the Calgary Flames as their director of scouting. Uh, how much responsibility came with that promotion? And did it alter your approach to scouting at all? 
that that was a that, that was an interesting interesting position for me because they had uh, Todd uh, Button uh, is the director of amateur scouting there, and they have drafted so well in Calgary. Uh, and my job was more of a hybrid uh, uh, manager job where I worked with on the pro side and on the amateur side. So when I first got there, it was with Jay Feaster and uh, John Weisbrot, and then Brian Burke came in, and then Brad Treliving came in. And the, the parts of the flames that I took were how important the process was and, and how, especially with Brad, like it was about, we wanted to understand why we didn't draft this person or maybe it's where we didn't do well three years ago in this draft. How did we miss on this player? Was it procedural or was it an opinion? So all the details that went into management from Brad and, and you know, ownership there in Calgary and seeing Todd Button and what he has done with his uh, amateur staff there and the, and the gems they found in players, late round players or taking chances on players where other people might have said, you know what, you know, player X, you know, we've heard some bad things about them and, and Todd and his staff and Brad and Craig Conroy and Brad Pascal and all the people that are there, they, they can kind of see past that and see where a, a player might fit in if you're able to help them. You know, essentially good teams want to find players who have poise in all different types of situations. So the mistakes that somebody makes at 16 or 17 as a player on the ice, eventually those are going to be not mistakes in three, four years. And, and I think Calgary's done an amazing job in finding those players. And, you know, even I still have right now on my computer a sheet of how do we build a team from Calgary? I hope Calgary's not listening right now because I still have it, but uh, and I use that as almost a blueprint of how they define job descriptions of the players. And then so when you're looking to acquire players and trade, whose job, whose job is that player going to take? If you're looking to draft somebody, it's like, OK, if this player hits, whose job is he going to take and what type of player is he? What, who's the comparable we have on the Calgary Flames or who's the comparable we have throughout the NHL? Yeah, and I, I think in that position, it, it just shows that uh, there's so many different things that you can take away from an organization when the right people are in place. And, um, you know, I haven't been able to talk to all of those people, but I've been able to talk to some people like Brad Treleving. And uh, it's pretty, you know, early on in the conversation, you can understand you're talking to somebody that really has a grasp for what they're doing in the game and, and understanding uh, player evaluation and things like that. But you know, it sounds like you had a, a lot of, uh, you know, positive takeaways from that position and like well, the other ones They were before. great. They, yeah. and, the, and the best part of Cal, like if, if you ask me to think of one thing from my time at Calgary is how much fun I had. Like I had so much fun around that staff. Like you get Brian Burke going on stories, like you don't want to leave. Like, you know, like it should be an hour long meeting and then it, it becomes four hours long of Brian telling stories and, and everybody laughing and like Brad for living, you know, it doesn't come across in interviews very well, I'm sure, but that's one of the funniest guys I've ever been around. And then, you know, you get Craig Conroy in there and, you know, it's Derek McKinnon and all these guys who were able to just have fun and enjoy what they do for a living and understanding what is on the line and understanding that the team, whether that's the hockey team, or whether it's the scouting management team, the team that does the most work 
between now and the end of the year, that's the team that's going to win. And whether that means you're going to win the scouting war or you're going to win the managing war or you're going to win the actual hockey war, the team that does the most work between the beginning of the season and the end of the year, those are the teams that win. Yeah, for sure. And for you, uh, you would take that mentality and move forward in a different position, this time going behind the bench in Winnipeg. How did that position present itself, uh, you know, coming from scouting into coaching? And how did you apply what you learned in previous positions in that new role? Well, that was that was the biggest leap uh, I've ever taken, and I'm sure it was probably one of the biggest leaps that uh, Paul Maurice would have taken too. So, you know, they, they had asked permission to talk to me. I think they were looking for someone that was more on the uh, younger side, uh, somebody that had a history of, uh, you know, helping develop players and a history of uh, being all around the world and having some, some you know, connections with players, whether they're from Russia or from Sweden or from Finland or wherever they were from. And someone that could come in and build relationships with the players. At that point, Winnipeg was a very young team. And uh, Paul wanted to have somebody that, you know, he would call me the hugger, like the person that people could come in and listen, you know, I would listen to them and be able to help them and try and do things. And, And not that Paul wouldn't do that. That's not what I'm saying. It's just it's almost a daily point of contact where uh, a player would be able to have a you know a conversation with one of the coaches and just try to figure things out, solve problems together, so that at the end of the day we're trying to teach all our players to be leaders in Winnipeg. Everybody was expected to lead there, and everybody was understanding that there was a role on their team. And for Paul, like to bring me in and he didn't even really know me. I think he had seen me um, at a world championship. He was with Hockey Canada and I was with uh, Team Belarus and he had seen me uh, run some practices and he knew my name because uh, uh, somehow, and then of course, Jamie Coppon was there and Jamie was able to say, okay, I know this guy Todd and Todd's a worker and he's gonna, you know, he's, he's gonna be the first guy at the rink. Well, actually not first guy at the rink because nobody ever beats Jamie Coppon to the rink. and and you know, he'll be the second last guy to leave the rink because Jamie Compon's always the last guy to leave the rink. So there was an element there that I think Paul had a, had a certainty that work was going to always be done. Uh, and then for Paul, I think I was a challenge for him that he wanted and maybe he needed at that point that he wanted to mentor somebody and he wanted to help somebody. Uh, so by helping me, he was helping the team. So like the messages I learned from Paul every single day, like we don't even have enough bandwidth to go through the things that I learned from Paul. And, and you know, that's for sure, without question, the single greatest hockey influence in my life and outside of my family, Paul would be the biggest influence uh, that I've ever had. The, the, the four years I had with Paul, uh, you know, I, I couldn't even begin to start to tell people what I learned from that person as a human being and, and how he is in the community and how he speaks and how he answers questions and how every single person Paul Maurice talks to is the single most important person in the world. And, and I'll try to emulate him for as long as I can. I'll never, ever, ever come close to it. But I know the standard that I want to get to and that standard was set by, by that gentleman right there. Yeah, Paul Maurice, uh, as many people know, is one of the great hockey minds in the game and an even better person. And 
Uh, he's been brought up on the podcast a few times now, uh, a couple times even as a coach uh, with some of our guests having played for him, uh, you know, back in the OHL days and things like that. But uh, when you have a positive experience with someone like that and, and they're able to teach you so much and, and in those conversations, like you said, treat you um, as if you're like, you know, the most important person at that point in time, it, it really does make a difference. And, uh, you know, you want to go to battle for them every day and put in those extra hours and that extra effort. And, um, you know, Winnipeg had some success and was a very young team and uh, had that connection to St. John's with the AHL affiliate there for a while. Yep. So, uh, I was able to kind of see some of those players uh, grow through. One of the guys who comes to mind right away, Adam Lowry, uh, see how he's progressed at the NHL level. But uh, Connor Hellebuck, another player, of course, with his success. But just interesting to hear um, about the experience overall and, uh, you know, what you learned uh, during that time. Well, he, he, he was the guy that I believe uh, understood almost first and foremost that the pendulum has really swung in the relationship between players and coaches and players they they want to have be partners with coaches now so good coaches are always going to look to develop players and uh, they want to get you from you know where you are to where you want to be as a player adam lowry is a perfect example like you know adam was was not a full-time player at the point when he first got there now he's an established bona fide key piece of a team that has earned the trust and, and that's really what uh coaches want they they want dependable and dependable equals trust and that's what adam became so with paul understanding that he had to develop his players for me it was also he wanted to develop his people the people that he was working beside every single day so in my circumstances of course that's me uh i felt that i did not work one day ever when I was able to wear the Jets logo. Like it was the best, most formative time of my life. And, and I will forever be thankful to Paul and to the Jets and to the city of Winnipeg and the team. It was, you know, it, it was amazing. Yeah, that's, a, that's amazing to hear and, and very high praise for an organization. Uh, so you take what you learned there as you did in previous positions and uh, you know, today you're in a little bit of a different role as a head coach at the University of Vermont. Uh, talk about that position a little bit. And I know it's been a little bit different navigating through a pandemic and things like that. But maybe tell the listeners what you're looking forward to as things start to uh, return to normal uh, here in the near future, hopefully. Well, they, the first thing was, is when uh, when I was approached about the job, the first person I called was Paul and uh, kind of asked, you know, what his thoughts were. Uh, and, you know, Paul, most people don't, you know, probably wouldn't understand that it, it doesn't come across again, how funny he is. Like that's maybe another common theme there, like Jacques Lemaire, how funny that guy is and Brad for living and, you know, Paul Maurice, all these guys, like they just find humor in all these situations. And the first thing he said to me, he said, well, don't tell them to call me for a reference because I'm going to tell them about all your you know, your criminal history and, you know, all the things you do because he, he he said he didn't want to lose me. So he said, make sure they don't call me. But that was really his way of lightening the conversation for me uh, to, to say, hey, like, this is an amazing thing. Of course, I don't want you to go anywhere. Um, but if this is something you want to do, let's attack this together. And he helped me formulate a plan uh, to go after this job and, and to attack it. And then to say, to me at that point that it's it's not really uh, Vermont interviewing me, 
it's me interviewing Vermont. Like, do I really want to be there? What's it like when you go there? What are the conditions going to be? Where's the team at? And as the process went through and, and the people that were interviewing me over Zoom, which is, you know, now this is an everyday thing at that point it was very foreign to everybody. Uh, and to try to interview over Zoom, uh, it was almost an artificial situation. But the one thing I, I kept getting back from everybody I was on Zoom calls with, and I think I did like eight or nine of them with large groups of people across a broad spectrum of people who work at University of Vermont or alumni of the team, was that the service back to the university, so people who work here have been here for 29 years, you know, 21 years, 17 years, 18 years, 12 years. There was only one or two people I met throughout that process that had only been here, you know, six or seven years. So to me, that was like a big green light of what this place is going to be for me and, and where this program is going to go. Um, and then just able to sell to the administration here that, you know, this is uh, an opportunity for this team to reinvent itself constantly and get away from the idea of like, you know, think being safe. Like we don't, we don't want to be safe. We want to challenge ourselves every single day. So one thing we did right off the bat was we brought in uh, uh, a guest speaker, a master violinist by the name of Kai Tight. And he came on some Zooms with the team and he kept talking about that, about how the best performers and the best students, and, and I guess really the same thing goes for coaching, uh, that you're always trying to learn. And, and, and when Kai was talking to our team, now this is a guy who's played at the White House. This is the guy who plays in the Great Wall of China. And he's a world master violinist and he's never played hockey before, but the lessons he taught our team and, and even I talked about it yesterday with our team is it's not, it, our start our starting line really doesn't matter. It's, it's what's our finish line and how are we gonna constantly challenge ourselves and reinvent ourselves. So all that stuff came from Paul, like encouraging me to, to think of different ways of uh, motivating these players and, and finding modern ways of connecting with the players. So. That all came full circle again. And, uh, I know I've said it before, I feel like a broken record, but you really are a coach. Uh, as a coach, you really are a sum of all the, all the coaches that have influenced you, whether it would have been going back to playing as a young player, to all the coaches, I remember every one of their names, and then all the way to the, the people that I've been fortunate enough to work with and work beside. Um, and, and that'll be something that uh, is going to drive me as a coach going forward. Yeah. And, you know, like you said, uh, with all the things that you've learned, you've been able to now take that in a situation like Vermont, where it's, it's really, you know, um, you have more control and you're able to kind of do things your own way uh, with the help of others, obviously, but um, doing different things like bringing in, uh, you know, a world renowned musician who uh, has no involvement in the game of hockey, but still able to teach some things like that. And, uh, you know, you look all over the world, there's, there's different uh, people that you can see in different places that teach you these different things that will benefit you down the road. And uh, for you, you were a scout in Europe, you're able to take away things there. And when I went through your interview before, uh, you know, uh, through your resume, sorry, prior to the interview, I was blown away by the amount of international experience that you had, you know, experience at World Juniors uh, in different countries. So maybe let's talk about those positions a little bit, maybe just broadly overall and which included time with Belarus, Canada, Switzerland, and Sweden. Yeah, I think from uh, my, my years with Minnesota, we had uh, 
you're too young to remember the TV show Happy Days, but there was a show called Happy Days, and there was a very famous episode where uh, a guy by the name of Fonzie uh, was a water skier, and he, and he had to jump over a shark, and that's become kind of like a uh, a saying, like if you jump the shark, it's something you're doing, like, you know, kind of maybe it's a greater challenge than most people would expect you to overcome, and and I really jumped the shark there uh, with the wild even getting that job. And then we went to the final four in 2003. We went on a couple of big playoff runs. You know, it'd be Colorado in game seven, we'd be uh, Vancouver in game seven. And then we, you know, we ended up losing to Anaheim. Uh, and Mike Babcock was the coach of Anaheim at that point. And then fast forward one year, it's 2004. Uh, we ended up being uh, out of the playoffs and then Hockey Canada had called and I'm sure it was Doug Riseborough or Jacques Lemaire that put my name forward to be the video coach for team, uh, for team Canada. And, you know, that staff was, uh, you know, it was an all-star staff. You know, yeah, we had Tom Rennie on that staff. We had Joel Quenville who, uh, who was there and got a little bit sick and had to leave. And then Mike Babcock was on that staff. And then we had Mike Polino and just an amazing collection of hockey minds. And we ended up winning gold medal against uh, Sweden, uh, coincidentally, in 2004 in uh, Prague. And those connections have still stayed with me. Even players who played on that team, I'm still connected to and, and still maintain a relationship with. And, and Mike and I had kept a, a relationship from then. And, and then when he got the job in Detroit and you know, he was looking for somebody to be a video coach for him, I said, hey, I have my younger brother is a you know, he's an ex-college player. He's playing over in Europe right now, and he'd be a real sharp guy for it. So my brother Jay went and worked with Mike. And then from there, Jay was with uh, Todd McClough and also on the staff of the Red Wings. And then they moved over to San Jose. And my next experience internationally came, I think, a couple of years later when Glenn Hanlon invited me to go with Team Belarus. And now it's a completely different situation. So now we're going from you know, household NHL names do at that point. I think we had two players who anybody on this podcast, unless you're from Belarus, would ever know. We had uh, Andre Kostitsin was on that team. Uh, and I think Sergei Kostitsin was on that team and, and Michael Grabowski. Those were the guys uh, who anybody would know. And uh, the challenges of trying to teach and coach in a culture where not everybody spoke English, like hardly anybody spoke English. So even communicating with players was a real challenge, but you had to learn how to do it. And Belarus uh, that year had the highest success they had had. And uh, the relationships made through the Federation continue to 2020 right now. Like many of the people that were involved in that team, I'm still connected to. And some of them are now advisors, some of them are now coaches, and, and we're all able to help each other. And uh, Fast forward a couple of years later, and when uh, Glenn Hanlon was uh, coaching Team Switzerland, he invited me to come as his assistant there. And after being his assistant in Belarus, he knew that I could have uh, more responsibility and more coaching. And, and, you know, that was an amazing thing with Team Switzerland. That's like Roman Yossi and uh, a bunch of guys from that team who are still stars in the game right now and being able to see them when we would play Nashville every time we'd be able to have a laugh with Roman and all the great players we met out of that federation and and then from there uh, I was actually invited to be part of the World Cup team first with uh, Team Sweden and I had kept uh, 
we keep using the word relationships. I guess that might be the word that's most important today. Uh, I kept relationships with Ricard Grunberg, uh, who when I first met him as a scout with the LA Kings in like 2009, he was the coach of the under 18 team for Sweden. And I figured out uh, if I wanted to get information about the players that were on his team that year, and he, you know, those are all the guys who are now winning major trophies in the NHL. I figured that I had to help him somehow. So I was able to give him NHL coaching information and share with him the trends that were happening in the NHL. And then as his career started to skyrocket, we were staying in touch. And, you know, he had the foresight to figure out that on the World Cup team, it might make sense to have a North American on the staff who could see things from a North American lens. So, you know, like, you want to talk about intimidating like that staff was Nicholas Lidstrom it's Matt Sundin with Daniel Alfredson and then you know household name in Sweden Todd Woodcroft like people had no idea who I am and here we are trying to uh, build this world cup team together and then it trans transitioned into the coaching role for them as well so it was uh, such a awesome time in my life to be able to be on the ice every day with the uh, Lundquists and the Landeskogs and the Hedmans and the Eric Carlsons and all these players who you watch on TV and you think, my gosh, these guys are unbelievable players. So then, you know, the, the work that we did there, we felt real proud of. They invited me to go back to the uh, world championship, uh, world championship team. Uh, and it happened to be uh, uh, in Germany and to be on the world championship team as an assistant coach. And, and uh, we ended up winning gold medal against Canada. Uh, and a lot of the same players, Lundqvist, uh, you know, all those guys uh, were on that team as well. And uh, that was amazing, amazing, amazing. And even anytime the Federation calls me for anything, I'm always there to help them. And uh, everybody that was there was still a big part of my life. And I use all those guys. The national team coach for the world junior team is an excellent up and coming coach named Thomas Montan. I think he's going to be doing great things in, in hockey. Ricard Grunberg is, everybody talks about him becoming uh, maybe the first Swedish head coach. He's over in Switzerland right now. And so those are also guys who played a huge role in my development. And then Johan Garpenlov, who's now the head coach for the team, for team uh, Sweden men's team. Like we always, everybody's connected. That's, that's kind of, I guess, the takeaway here. You just, you stay connected to everybody. You help them when they need something, they ask you for something, you do it, and you do it right. And then when you need something back, you're going to get the same thing. Yeah. All great hockey minds you mentioned there. And many of them I've heard interviews and seen, uh, you know, presentations and things like that. There's so much you can learn. Uh, and to, for you to be able to have experiences with multiple countries and go from experience of, you know, being on the ice with Carlson and Hedman, and then, going to Belarus and, and trying to navigate uh, through a language barrier. I mean, looking back at, at the variation in those experiences, I'm sure there's a lot of takeaways from that as well. Um, no, go ahead. Oh, I see. I mean, I'm sure if you ask Victor Hedman, he'd be the guy to tell you that I made him the player that he is today. I mean, <laughs> Eric Carlson, same thing. Like those guys wouldn't be anything if it wasn't for me, you know? So, I mean, that's, that's kind of the joke there is you go there and you're dealing with the best of the best. And that for a coach, that's like going on the ice with the Harlem Globetrotters, right? Like that they are so good and so precise in what they do. And, and 
the Swedish mindset is a little bit different than the North American mindset and the responsibility is so much on the players to solve the problems, which is a big part of how I coach now is that I tell the players, you know, two, three times a week that the solutions are actually inside this locker room. You know, we can prepare you as much as possible. We can give you a structure. Uh, we can ask you to compete and we can explain about execution, but apart from the structure part of things, it's up to the players to execute. It's up to the players to compete. And in Sweden, I think that is one of the best parts of their culture is that the players have a huge say in the success of the team and they take ownership of it. And, you know, watching all those players day after day and, you know, seeing what Lundqvist was doing basically on one leg to win that game for us in a shootout against Canada in 2017. Like those are things that I will never, ever, ever forget. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, continuing on the topic of international hockey, some people may not know you also had a stint in the KHL uh, with Minsk. Uh, Maybe just talk about that experience and the difference in working in hockey operations in that league. Well, that was uh, that was the first year of the KHL, so it was uh, 2009, and I remember calling uh, George McPhee, uh, who I was still working for the Capitals, and I said, "Hey, this opportunity kind of, you know, it fell across my lap right here." And uh, graciously, he uh, he let me out of my contract to go and chase this uh, this dream of uh, taking a team from scratch, essentially from scratch. To going into the KHL for the very first year, the inaugural year of the season, and all the problems that we had to solve daily. So it was myself, it was, uh, you know, Jim Hughes, uh, who's the father of all the Hughes boys, uh, was the head coach at that point. And, uh, you know, two guys who didn't really speak any Russian, uh, you know, trying to play in a, the second best league in the world. Uh, you know, that and the American League are the two best leagues outside the NHL and, and trying to navigate waters that nobody's navigated before, whether it was, you know, food that we said, why are players eating chocolates uh, before the game or just cultural issues we would try to understand as coaches in a foreign country. And, you know, so many lessons you're able to learn that aren't even hockey, how to get around in a place where you don't speak a word and you can't read a single letter of the alphabet there. Now I've since uh, learned it and speak a little Russian and can read some Cyrillic. But at that point, you know, if you want to eat, you better learn how to say chicken. <laughs> you know, you better learn how to say something. And, and if you flip that around, now you have a real understanding of these players when they come over here for the first time. So, you know, you take a guy like, you know, Ovechkin, who I was with his first year in Washington, like his English was very limited. And with Alex, like I, now I can understand what it's like for him to come to a foreign country. Now he was able to be surrounded by some family, but if you take guys like Malkin and those players who come over here and they don't understand any English, all the food that you're used to, the culture that you're used to, the music, how you get around, how you drive, you know, what are the nuances of the game? How do you, you know, the locker room, all those things. It's so different. So I have a greater appreciation for the players who have to get through those prob- uh, problems, you know, and, and we in Vermont, we have a couple of international students and I'm able to, I think, understand where they're coming from a little bit better because I had been in their shoes as well. 
Yeah, and and you talk about these, uh, you know, high level players and even international players coming to Vermont and things like that. Uh, a p- large part of your job is kind of teaching them the ways and helping them in that transition. Uh, you've had the experience of working with a lot of NHL level players, you know, Blake Wheeler and Mark Shifley in recent years. Uh, how often do you learn from these players, even in a role where you're looking to provide guidance to them? Oh, I think you've learned more from those players. I can tell you, I learned more from Mark Shifley and Blake Wheeler than they ever learned from me. Uh, those two guys specifically, like those two guys specifically, and and they're they're very similar in their approach. Their personalities are a little bit different. Like Blake Wheeler, uh, and I don't say this lightly at all. Uh, he's Mark Messier. Like Blake Wheeler is the penultimate leader and he's the man who holds everybody accountable to a standard that he sets and he delivers every single day so you know hockey is such an emotional experience sports is such an emotional experience and when you can see an athlete like Blake Wheeler his approach every day and you'd almost have to know him and be on the ice with him to see it. Like, you know, he gives you the eyes. Like if you're a teammate and he gives you the eyes, because you give him a soft pass, I'm, I'm promising you, you're not going to make a soft pass to Blake Wheeler the next time because he's going to hold you accountable. And, and Mark Shifley, who's kind of like younger and, and so fun and so modern. And he is such, and he'll be the first to say it. He's a hockey nerd where he's just always learning and always learning and, and, the smallest, tiniest details, where you hold your top hand, how you take a puck off your toe and put it onto your heel, and where your top eye is when you come out of a corner, and where your heels are facing. It's like the smallest, littlest details that those guys do. And, the, and they work with Adam Oates, who's you know, the greatest uh, skill development coach, I think, out there and, and, and can do it without all the fancy gimmicky stuff. He just has his players. So Blake and Mark are two of the ones that he has, uh, and there's many more of them uh, on the Winnipeg Jets, but uh, they understand that you have to step back and play the basic scale sometimes and until you can master that. And then as you master it, you move on to something else, but then you got to come back to it and you got to come back to it again and you got to keep rewinding, regrouping, refocusing, relaxing, letting the stress go of some bad games or some, you know, some bad plays you might have made. And then for, for Mark, being able to be around Blake Wheeler and, and understanding that, like, as you become an established pro in the NHL, or even as you become an established D1 men's or women's hockey player, you're going to understand that, you know, you're going to have a few bad games and, you know, you might have a few bad games in a row. Like, let's say you play two out of two out of four or whatever, and two of them are good and two of them are okay. But as you get older, like a guy like Blake Wheeler, like, four out of five of his games are going to be really good. And then nine out of 10 games are going to be really good. And, and the game that's not really good, I can guarantee you that there will be effort there, even if you're not scoring, for example, because we don't want to equate offense and scoring with success. But the effort is going to be there in that one game that you say is not going to be your best game. And that's where Mark has the unique opportunity to learn from Blake Wheeler, you know, and, and so when Blake, you know, in a couple of years when he's retired and, you know, when Mark Shifley is, you know, 35 years old and, and I'm sure Joe Thornton's still playing at that time too, he'll be 76, but to be able to 
go back somewhere in his memory and understand what Blake would have done. And then there's going to be the next player that's coming behind Mark Shifley. And that might be Kyle Connor. It might be Patrick Line, whoever it is. And they're going to have seen how Mark has grown and evolved into the leader and the elite player that he is. So I'm assuming it's the same thing on so many other teams, but you brought up those two guys specifically. And uh, I know I learned so, so much from those guys, just how to prepare, how to be a pro, and figuring out that really you don't need all the fancy things. Uh, good teams do not play a fancy game, in my opinion anyway. Uh, you have to play the right game and you have to make the hard plays at the right times and the hard decisions with the puck. And sometimes that means you have to give the puck up and then you have to go get it back. And I feel really sorry for the guy that, that has the puck when Blake Wheeler's coming at you. I'll tell you that right now. Yeah. Yeah. The, uh, the skill set, I mean, is clearly there, but it's great to hear that the effort level and the accountability is always there. Uh, and it's, uh, you know, been a reason why those two in particular, uh, among other on the, on the team have been successful uh, both individually and then uh, as a team overall in the last couple of years. So, uh, you know, flipping it back to, uh, you know, you in the uh, teacher role, uh, listeners had a few questions that they wanted to ask you, uh, and many of them involved the topic of video coaching. For you, what would be the focal points you want to touch on when reviewing a game film? And then, uh, you know, when presenting to the team, how long would you conduct this type of interview? Well, when I came in, video coaching was so different, but there's so many uh, coaches now who started out as video coaches because that teaches you so much. You're able to learn the game through the lens of the other coaches that you work with. And now teams have multiple video coaches. So when I had that job in 2000, maybe 80% of the team had a full-time video coach. Now you have teams with two video coaches and you have two developmental video coaches. And, you know, so it's, it's totally evolving, almost like strength coaching was, uh, wasn't something that was important back in the, early parts of the 80s and 90s and teams figured out that that's going to give you a competitive advantage so coaches head coaches want to surround themselves with smart video coaches who are going to make them better and be able to do the work as well for them help them break down the game see the trends inside the game so i guess to answer the question there like using video to me it's a piece of the puzzle it's one piece of the puzzle uh my advice to anybody listening would be that you don't need to over video your team. So I had a player who came in here this morning and, and this player wanted to watch his shift from an inner squad uh, game we had on the weekend. And, and, you know, this is, you know, we're playing each other at this point right now as we get ready for our season to start in a couple of weeks. And he wanted, he said, let's watch all my shifts. I said, we're not going to watch all your shifts. We're going to watch nine clips from your game. And he was a little bit taken aback. He wanted to go through every single second. And it was about understanding that so much of the game, nothing is happening. And if you're doing your job, that's good. So we're going to find the areas of your game that you've been doing really well. And here's a couple of clips of the things that we need to focus on better. So for this player, it was, you know, on an offensive zone faceoff loss, where do you go? So we've talked about it as a team, and now there's been two or three instances this player didn't do it correctly. So I wanted to be able to show it to him and then show him the things he was doing really well. And these clips, they might be five, six seconds long. So I don't think it's a, it's a real advantage to be 
showing tons and tons and tons of video. We as coaches do tons of video. So we watch hours and hours and hours and hours of game and you do pre-scouts and you do post-scouts and you do specialty teams work and it's all on video. But the players are usually only going to see 1% of the actual work that goes in. So if you're thinking about a typical game day in the NHL on a typical game day, you would have a specialty team meeting in the morning. Uh, so let's say you skate at 1130 for a home team, you would have a specialty team meeting. Uh, sorry, at 1130, if you're on the road, uh, is usually when you skate. Uh, so you might have a specialty team meeting at uh, 10 o'clock, let's say on the power play. And you're going to look at your power play and, and think about stuff for that night. Maybe it's your penalty kill, it's whatever it might be. But usually you get one of the specialty teams out of the way in the morning. And then for a seven o'clock game, usually about 5.15, you're going to do the other specialty team. And uh, it's good to do that if you, if you have the opportunity in a separate room with your specialty team group, smaller group. We can focus on you know, maybe let's just say our penalty kill for this example and say, okay, here's the other team's power play. Here's what we have to do. This is them when they come up the ice. This is Connor McDavid when he takes a puck and it's dropped to him. And, and if you have the ability to show clips of yourselves having success against the Connor McDavid's or similar situations, I personally think that is the best way for your team to learn. And then when you get into your five on five meeting, instead of going right from that specialty team right into your five on five, the players need a couple minutes to you know, just kind of release and relax a little bit. And then you come in at 5.30 for a seven o'clock game in the NHL, you usually have a meeting and those are very succinct and they're to the point and they are like eight minutes, soup to nuts, that thing is done. Because if you're doing this 82 times a year and then you have preseason and then you have playoffs, you got to make sure that your players have a focus. I think that the best teams going forward are spending more time on themselves than they are against their opponents. Of course, teams are going to do pre-scouts and so that there's no surprises. And in the NHL, if you're playing a conference you don't normally play, you're not as familiar with them. Uh, if there's a coaching change on the other team, there might be new systems coming in, but these are the best players in the world. So if we say, hey, we're going to play against a, you know, a one-two-two neutral zone forecheck, most of our team is going to understand that against that situation, we want our D to skate, for example, or, you know, whatever it might be in this situation. So you're not really wasting time. Your, your uh, emphasis should be on the key points of the game. This is what they do best. This is how we're going to counter it. And here's an example of us doing uh, that right. You know, and then of course you have the, you know, the one-off things like special face-off plays or, little things that the other team might do. But I, if I was giving advice in this one, I would say you're probably doing too much video, uh, at least showing your players. Watch your game. Watch your game after if you can do it the next day so that your uh, the emotions are removed. If you play on a Saturday night, go home, get some sleep, sleep, spend some time with your family, and then you can watch that game the next day. Or even if you have the opportunity to take that full day off and get away from hockey for the day, and then on Monday, you start doing like a dissect with your game. How did we win or why we didn't play well or, you know, understanding whatever it is, your process and how you as a coach define success. You know, as coaches, we have to handle so many momentum swings. 
And if you can have your team understand that and understanding what your process is as a coach, I think your team is going to have way more success. But I, I would say most people probably do way too much video, uh, at least show too much video. Um, and that just might be something that you can do uh, just to make yourself more efficient and make sure that your players, uh, you have their focus all the time. Yeah, for sure. I think that's a thing that, uh, you know, I've had a little bit of experience on the video side and just finding that balance between getting all your points across, but not overloading these players with videos because you don't want them, you know, in the middle of a shift thinking about 20 minutes of, of clips that you're after showing them. And, and then they're not really getting the main points that you, you know, initially set out to kind of help them work through, but uh, that's well, at some point, point you got to open the gate and the, and the players like yeah. she or he has to get out there and, and start playing. Right. So you can use technology to your advantage. Now you can send your players stuff so that they can watch it on their own time and you're not wasting their time. So when you do have their attention in front of a video screen, it's, it's direct and it's to the point. So let's say you do a uh, pre-scout on the other team's centers. You don't need to bring in all your centers and spend 12 minutes going over the other team centerman face off. You can build a project and send that to your players and they can look at it on the phone when they're on the bus or when they're eating breakfast or they're sitting in the lounge or whatever it might be. So there's an efficiency aspect of video. I think most coaches can do a little bit better. Yeah. And then another quick uh, question that came from listeners, it was on the scouting and coaching front and even player evaluation. Uh, they were just wondering, you know, from experience, what are some make or break characteristics that are the hardest to coach and what abilities, uh, even from a scouting perspective, are deemed as passable, uh, you know, as needs improvement and things that you can work on? I think you'd almost have to back up that question and say, what are your values as a coach? So, you know, and if, you, if, if you're this coach and you're doing this scouting, you're trying to build an identity of your team. If you're a scout and you're working for a head coach, you want to know what that identity is so that you can recruit or scout to it. Uh, you know, I, I listened to Paul Maurice the other day, he just called and, and probably knew that things were hard in hockey East right now and teams getting delayed. And that's just the, the gentleman that he is. And he was called and he was checking in on me. And he just said, like, if your players and your staff are able to, exactly define what is important to you as a coach then you've done your job in communicating so I think that goes back to answering the question here is you want to know what are your values as the head coach or if you are that scout what is what does she or he want as the head coach and if you're trying to find players you're recruiting to that identity so for me uh, the first thing I look for and it's the, the buzzword of all buzzwords is compete right like I want players who burn to win and, and like competing and winning are so important. And that might mean in, in just the small games you're doing in practice or, you know, anything that they're playing for and even things are doing off the ice together. We did that in the first phase of COVID. We had them in three different pods and, and we gave them challenges and points that we're going to be towards winning something. And just to see the competitiveness come out, like we had community service hours and whoever came up with the most community service hours was going to get like triple bonus points. We had 275 community service hours done. And, and, and I was so proud, but it was a competition as well. They took pride in doing it and representing the school. 
but it was a competition. So I, for me, if I was uh, going to say about scouting, it's about finding the players that have skill that can compete and, and then to be able to have poise in specific situations. And if you're watching players, I think the best scouts are the ones who can understand how the coach you're, the, of the team that you're watching, how that player is used. Is that player first over the boards? Is that player on the power play or the penalty kill? Is that player on the ice, uh, you know, when it's a six on five or is uh, she or he on the ice when it's a five on six, whatever it is, and starting to see, starting to read some body language, you know, when players come to how they get back to the bench on a line change, or are they taking too long shifts? All those little details uh, I think are important. And then understanding how the coach uses that player because a mistake I have learned early on was just looking at skill and just saying, man, this, this player is a very skilled player or misreading players and saying, Hey, like, why is that player backing up in that situation? Like, why is that player doing that? Or if you're watching modern defensemen who will take rushes now with their feet, you know, not going backwards in the same direction as the puck carrier, you're like, somebody might say that and say, why aren't they skating backwards? It's understanding that there are different trends in modern parts of the game. Uh, so I, I hope that answers the question, but that's what I would say. Yeah, no, that's a great answer. And when you talk about that little point about, uh, you know, kind of backtracking uh, a player into the boards, but facing uh, the same way that the puck carrier is, uh, Quinn Hughes is a player that comes to mind instantly when thinking about that trait. But uh, no, all great points there. And, um, you know, a lot of those things that you mentioned there, you learned from, uh, people in the industry as has been a common theme throughout and the people at my hockey resource they think the same way uh, my hockey resource is a community on discord that focuses on bringing all positions in hockey operations together um, created by a former guest ian beckenstein they have a lot of different people at the nhl level and ahl level that come together and talk about different topics personally i've used it in the past and have been able to learn a lot about coaching cards and video coaching and the list goes on and on so be sure to check out My Hockey Resource on Twitter and Instagram. And for more information, feel free to reach out to the podcast or to My Hockey Resource directly. Moving on the topic of resources uh, in a more of a reflective state in the interview, uh, you know, you've had the opportunity to talk with many people, but you can also learn from things such as books, articles, other sports, etc. For you, what are some things that you look to for reference and for new ideas? I'm a, I'm a reader. I love reading. I always have. Uh, I love reading about what makes other people successful. I mean, I read an article in The Athletic uh, uh, today, actually, by uh, Dana O'Neill. It was an article on Mark Pugh, who's the coach of Gonzaga. And it actually goes back to the, uh, the question we just had there about scouting. And, and, and Mark Pugh, he, he, I actually wrote it down. It's beside my desk right now. That's why it's so fresh in my mind. It's uh, and he's a fly fisherman like I am. So that's why it resonated with me. And, it, and, and he had said, it's not where you cast, but how you cast. And that's about like what type of player you're looking for. So I, I, I took something out of that, for example, and, and reading about guys like Greg Popovich or, you know, Tara Vanderveer in Stanford, uh, you know, almost a thousand wins as a coach and, you know, the late Pat Summit and trying to understand like how these coaches, how did she win over a thousand games? Like just things that motivated them and things that they learned along the way. And, and you know, the big time coaches, you can always talk about the Pete Carroll's, uh, 
I'm a soccer fan, so you know, you know, Jurgen Klopp and seeing how modern he is and how he's transformed, you know, Liverpool. And then you can actually go back and see what guys like Anatoly Tarasov did and how he changed the game from a Russian perspective. And then, you know, full circle, it just comes back to me that I know that I can pick up the phone any day. And if I have a hockey question, I'm gonna call uh, Jacques Lemaire or Todd McClellan, two guys who were so great to me early. And Mike Babcock, who's actually a, a volunteer coaching advisor at UVM with us and has been so selfless with his time. And Paul Maurice and Jamie Compon are people who continue to inspire me and help me every day. And then at the end of it, it's my brothers. Like I can call either those two guys, two guys who, you know, love me unconditionally. And we all want to challenge ourselves and make ourselves each be better coaches and be able to just talk out any uh, issues we have hockey or otherwise. Yeah. You've had a number of great mentors and, and people help you along the way. And uh, throughout the interview, we've heard a, a number of uh, people that have, uh, you know, been a positive influence and taught you major lessons. So as a final question on the podcast today, Todd, uh, if you could go back maybe to yourself, uh, maybe on the way to that playoff game uh, with the free tickets or maybe someone in a similar position, what's one piece of advice that you would give them in hopes that they would succeed in the game of hockey? Wow, that's a huge one. I, I would say like uh, you want to you figure out what your values are as a coach. How do you define success? And, and who you are as a coach shouldn't really change dependent on the circumstances that you are. So uh, like, you know, Paul had said to me, like at the end of the year, your players should be able to essentially say, this is what this head coach is. This is what he believes in. People should know what is important to you and what is important to your team. And then I guess the other thing for me on the coaching side of things is that you're always second. You always have to be second. The only time you're ever first is when things aren't good. And then you got to be first. And I learned that from Jacques Lemaire. And, and that's one of my most early memories was that Jacques Lemaire never wanted to be in a team photo. And he never wanted to be in a team photo because he always believed that this is a game for girls and boys. And we're just the people who open up the door and provide a little bit of structure and hopefully provide a moral compass and show them the way and teach them lessons that aren't just hockey. Like if you're a youth coach listening, the things that are important to you don't just have to be hockey. It can be about winning gracefully. It can be about losing gracefully. It can be about sportsmanship. It's about how to treat the officials and respecting the officials and respecting your opponents and finding the players on your team. And you might not be a triple A team. You could be a single A team and, you know, the, the joy you're going to get when you see one of your players go surround himself or herself with a player who normally wouldn't have attention and, and supporting each other. So I think all those lessons shape who you are as a coach and will define your values. If you can stay true to those and if you really burn to be a coach, don't give up. Tremendous piece of advice there. And uh, you know, so many lessons throughout that listeners will take away. So Todd, uh, I've taken enough time out of your day today, but I just want to thank you once again for taking some time to come on the podcast and uh, hopefully things are normal soon enough. And I wish you all the best moving forward. Thanks very much. I, I listen to you guys and I think you guys are doing a great job and I appreciate the opportunity to, uh, to share a little bit of my experience. Hope all everybody right. has a safe and happy and healthy and warm holiday season.
All right. Thanks again, Todd. Take care. Take care. I'd like to thank Todd for joining me on the podcast and sharing his story as well as his thoughts and opinions on the game of hockey. It's not often you get to hear from someone who has spent a number of years in the NHL and even fewer have worked as a scout, video coach, and assistant coach across multiple organizations. So for sharing throughout the interview, I'd like to once again thank him. If you would like to get in touch with Todd to learn about his experiences, I encourage you to reach out to him directly or contact HockeyMindsPodcast at Outlook.com and I can help make that connection for you. Next on the podcast, I'll be joined by Andre Lefebvre, scout with the Moncton Wildcats and assistant coach with Dalhousie University. Working his way through the coaching and scouting ranks, Andre knows the ins and outs of the minor hockey system and provides a lot of in-depth analysis on working with players, so stay tuned for that release. Once again, I'd like to thank everyone for listening to the podcast and thank you for the continued support on all fronts as of late. It's been a fun journey thus far, and I'm excited to see where it goes. As always, stay safe, and all the best.